Everybody glad you're here. I apologize to those of you sitting up high in the nosebleeds. I'll greet you next week. I'll get up there next week. I thank God for you. Feel the hugs. Um, grateful that you're here. I want to underscore what Corey just, uh, Corey, Josh just shared with us about those shoes because kids that don't have proper gear or um, proper supplies, it's more than just a, a fact of need. It's their self-worth that gets damaged. Maybe you were there. Maybe you didn't have stuff as nice as other kids' stuff, and you know how that feels. So let's this week, me and you, go out and buy some shoes. I mean, mine are used, but they smell bad. So I don't want to give that to a kid. Let's get some shoes to make a difference in a child's life. Um, right now, I want to greet those that are watching online. Uh, those of you that are here for the first time, I want to thank you uh, that you allow God to bring you uh, into this moment because he wants to speak into your heart. And um, you've caught us uh, in the middle of a teaching series called Not Perfect. Not Perfect, that's me. Not Perfect, that's you. So the deal is, one thing we all have in common, we would love to have at least one do-over. I mean, if we could rewind our lives and go back in time, what would be three instances in your life where you would love to have a do-over? To take back those hurtful words you said, to remedy that terrible decision you made, to undo the bad thing you did, where would you go back in your life? Where could it change a lot of stuff into good stuff if you could just get a do-over? And I suggest three times because, you know, in the Old Testament part of the Bible, there are three Hebrew words for sin. Now, you probably know the Bible wasn't originally written in English, the Old Testament, in Hebrew. And here are the three words for sin. The first is kata, and it means to go wrong and bear the blame. It's my fault. I bear the blame. It's your fault. You are to blame. That's one aspect of sin. Another is the Hebrew word peshaw. And it means knowing it's wrong and doing it anyway. I've done that a lot. And you've done that a lot. Aren't you glad you came today? The third Hebrew word for sin is avon. And it means something so bad you deserve to be punished. Something so bad, it merits severe punishment. Um, so let me ask you, what's the worst thing you've ever done? I mean, maybe you were forgiven, but still the guilt, the shame haunts your life. You ever wonder, I mean, after having said the wrong thing and done the wrong thing, made the bad decision, have you ever wondered if you could actually become a different, better person, a, a different, better spouse, a, a different, better kind of friend, a, a different, better kind of parent, a, a different, better kind of Christ follower? Do you ever wonder if you'll ever get rid, if you'll ever be free of the shame? You ever wonder if, you get, if there's some way to get over your past? These questions dog our lives, and I, I want to try to answer them today by introducing you to a guy named Judah. He was a big deal guy 
in the Old Testament part of the Bible, in the very first book of the Bible, book of Genesis. When he was born, his mom named him Judah. Judah means to be praised. In fact, the entire Jewish nation is named after Judah. The Jewish religion, Judaism, is named after Judah. This is a shocker. Not after Abraham, the father of the faith. Not after Moses, the guy that came down off Mount Sinai in fire and lightning and storms with the Ten Commandments. No, the entire Jewish nation and the Jewish faith named after Judah to be praised. It's just that he never, never, never over a significant part of his life lived up to his name. Judah was a joke. He was the worst kind of wicked jerk. And I put the emphasis on the word wicked. When it came to being not perfect, it was like on steroids with Judah. Let me just fire off the, the, the bullet points of his ugly, evil imperfections. First of all, Judah was cruel. He had uh, 10 brothers and he led nine of them, nine of his brothers. He had nine of his brothers. That's 10 guys. And these are young men. They just beat the ever loving soup out of their youngest brother, Joseph. Remember that name? They, Joseph is 14 at the time and they just beat the crud out of him. And it's not just that they want to beat him bloody. They want him dead. So then after they have beaten him, these 10 brothers, they throw him in a pit. He can't get out. It's inescapable. They give him no water, no food. They want him to just die of exposure. Judah led his brothers to do all that. But Judah was more than cruel. He was vicious. He said, hey guys, you know what's worse than death? A life of slavery. Let's take Joseph out of that pit and sell him into slavery. And so they did. Maybe Joseph thinks he's, you know, it was a bad joke. The joke is over. When they get him out of the pit, they strip him of his clothes, strip him naked, and they sell him so they can make some money on the side. They sell him to slave traders who haul him away in chains hundreds of miles away from his family, from his culture, from his faith, from his language, all the way to Egypt. And this Judah... He was more than cruel and vicious. He was deceitful, or you might use the word controlling because if you're a controlling person, you're a deceitful person. If you're deceitful, you're controlling. But that was Judah. He took Joseph's robe and spread it out on the ground as the taillights of the slave traders disappeared in the distance. He grabbed a goat that they were herding, slit its throat, and poured its blood over the robe of Joseph. And then heads for home with his other brothers. The robe is dripping with blood. It takes him about three or four days to get home. And we find when they arrive home that Judah is a manipulative liar. He goes face to face with his dad, looks his dad in the eye and says this. Judah says, we found, holding up the bloody robe, he says, we, we, we found this. Why don't you take a look at it? Examine it to see if it's your son's robe. Notice he doesn't even use his brother's name. Well, I don't know what Judah was expecting of his dad. His dad's name is Jacob. I don't know what he had envisioned. But beyond his wildest imagination, his dad is just wrecked. His grief is out of control. Here's what the Bible says. Jacob, that's the dad, he tore his robe in grief and then dressed in rough burlap 
and mourned his son a long, long time. Anytime the same word is repeated twice in the Bible, it means an extensively, an extensively long time. He can't get over his grief. Now they, the brothers, tried to comfort him, but he refused their comfort. Wonder, I wonder if he suspected. They, he knew they hated Joseph. He refused their comfort. He said, I will go to my grave mourning my son. And oh, how his father wept for Joseph. Well, as it turns out, Judah, the guy behind the beating, the guy behind the sale into slavery, the guy behind the lie, the guy behind the deceit, he can't take one more moment of his dad's grief. I mean, this is every day. This is throughout the day. His dad is wailing. His dad is crying. The dad can't get through a meal without breaking down over Joseph. And so Judah leaves home. He packs up his stuff and he heads out. The Bible says it this way. At that time, Judah went down, say went down, went down from his brothers and turned aside. Say turned aside. You see, those two phrases are not directional like north, south, east, or west. Those two phrases are a double emphasis that Judah was going far in the wrong direction, far away from God, far away from his family, in the wrong direction, far away from his faith. And here's what happens. Judah finds a community and he settles down in this community, but it's a community of unbelievers. They did not give, excuse me, they did not believe in the one true and living God. They did not worship God. They worshiped a bunch of little wood and stone idols. He makes unbelieving friends, friends who don't give a rip about the one true and living God. And he marries a pagan unbelieving wife. She gives him, she gives birth to three sons. When that first son, the oldest son is of age, Judah arranges a marriage with an unbelieving woman named Tamar. Remember that name. Just say it with me. Tamar. One more time. Tamar. She's the pivotal person in this story. So the oldest son marries Tamar. He didn't want to. He was resistant. Dad had arranged the marriage. He does what dad says. But this guy is notoriously evil. He is openly defiant of God. And as a result, is killed before his time. He, he's, he's still a newlywed, but he's dead as a rock, dead as a stone. So Judah corners his second son in age, puts his back against the wall, sticks his finger in his face and orders him, now you marry Tamar and you get her pregnant. I want children to bear my name, grandchildren. And so the second son, he's as bad as his dad. He's worse than his brother. And because his dad ordered him to and threatened him, he does marry Tamar, but he refuses to have sexual relations with her. He's in line to receive the inheritance from his Brother, whatever his brother had is going to come to him. He doesn't want to share it with Tamar, and he doesn't want to share it with some squalling kid. He is openly defiant of God, and he is killed before his time. Now Judah is freaking out. Two dead sons. Is he paying the consequence? Is he being punished for his past sins? Or 
Maybe he thinks there's nothing wrong with me. It's that two-time widow, Tamar, the witchy woman. I'm sure they had good rock and roll back then. But he promises Tamar his third son in marriage. But he never delivers. And this is huge because in that day, an unmarried woman had no one to provide for her, no one to protect her. So she is destined for poverty. She is defenseless. She is destitute. And so years go by. Judah keeps promising to arrange the marriage with his third son. Tamar keeps believing, trusting. But all of a sudden, after years, years go by. And it occurs to her, she's getting the shaft. She's deceived. This is never going to happen. She's going to have to live in poverty, destitution, defenseless, with no one to protect or provide for her. So desperate times demand desperate measures. And, and she comes with a plan. She makes a bold move. She takes off her widow's garment. She's still dressed in mourning after all these years. She puts on a veil to cover her face, slips into a halter top, a pair of fishnet stockings, bright pink hot pants, and knee-high high heel boots. I made all that up. Except for the veil. Uh, however prostitutes dressed in that day, she dressed herself like a prostitute. And she went where prostitutes went to ply their trade, to the outskirts of town. And she did what prostitutes did to uh, attract business. She sits by the side of the road. Here's what the Bible says. You see, she had heard that Judah was coming to town. And so quickly, out of the widow's clothes, into the prostitute getup, and Judah, her father-in-law, Judah saw Tamar and thought she was a prostitute, not realizing that she was, because she was veiled and her face hidden, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you, which is Bible talk for other stuff. She asked, what will you give me if I sleep with you? He said, I'll send you a young goat. She said, well, you old goat, give me something right now as a pledge until you send it. I want your seal and its cord and your staff in your hand. This is like asking him for his driver's license and his social security number. It was his personal ID, but he gives it up. So he gave his cord, his seal, his staff to her and slept with her. I don't think there was much sleeping going on because she gets pregnant. It's like a soap opera, eh? She's pregnant. He goes home, gets a friend, gives a goat to a friend, says, take this goat down to the prostitute on the outside of town and get back my staff, my cord, and my seal. So the friend grabs the goat, goes to where the prostitute had been, but she's long gone. When he comes back with just the goat and no staff, no seal, no cord, Judah is like, oh my gosh, don't you ever say a word about this. I'll be the laughing stock of town. Let's just sweep this under the cupboard, forget that it ever happened. And so just when Judah feels like, hey, there's gonna be no negative ripple effect, no consequence to my behavior, to my sin, here's what happens. Three months later, Judah was told, hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's guilty of prostitution. 
Uh, can you see um, Judah trying to keep a straight face? Oh, really? As a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. This dude is harsh. As she was brought out, she sent a message to Judah. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She added, see if you recognize whose seal, whose cord, and whose staff these are. As Judah holds the cord, the staff, and the seal in his hand, something gets wrecked in his heart. Something happens in Judah's very soul that changes the entire trajectory of his life. His life story is completely transformed by what's happening on the inside. In fact, if this same occurrence would take place in your soul today, it would change the trajectory of your life. It would change your whole life story. Holding the staff, his personal identification, the cord and the seal, he blurts out these words. She's in the right. I'm in the wrong. It's my fault. I was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. I mean, my whole life has been wrong. I just kept doing whatever I wanted, whatever I darn well pleased. I know I deserve to be punished. We are 38 chapters deep in the first book of the Bible. We are 38 chapters deep, and this is the very first time that any human being ever admits they're wrong. Ever. It's the first time, and it's the first time we see a real act of repentance. First time. Now, when you interpret the Bible, the number one principle is the principle of first. When you see for the first time some experience or some behavior, every other time that experience appears in the Bible, you interpret it through the lens of that very first occurrence. This is the very first act of real, genuine repentance. The Hebrew word for repentance is teshuvah. And it means to turn your back on your sin. Turn your back on your sin and turn back from God. Turn from sin, turn back to God. And that's what happens in Judah's soul. Now, this is a long story. But if you read it, you see that from this point forward, everything is different in his life. His authentic repentance, turning from his sin and turning to God, put his life on a whole different trajectory. You know what he does? He goes back home. He's reunited with his brothers and his dad. Guess where he ends up? He ends up in Egypt, reunited with Joseph. And guess what he does? He allows himself, he offers himself up to be a slave to Joseph to save his youngest brother. His repentance by his repentance, God gave him unconditional acceptance. God fully forgave him. It put his life on a whole new trajectory of deep love because our God highly values the repentant heart. And you see, real repentance is, counteracts each different kind of sin when we go wrong. 
When we know it's wrong, but we do it anyway. When we deserve to be punished, repentance counteracts. Look at this. Real repentance. Number one, real repentance removes the shame. It's amazing. I love this part of repentance. I've experienced this personally. I mean, repentance is not a one and done because our sin is not a one and done. We want to have lifestyles of repentance. We might go to our knees. There have been times when I've been down on my face. Lord, I was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. I'm not going to do that no more. I'm never going that way again. I'm turning to you, God. It's amazing. Where there should be shame because I was to blame, he removes the shame. He cleanses us of guilt. It, 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 it happened to Judah. It will, it's happened to me. It will happen to you every time you truly repent. And number two, Real repentance makes you right with God. I mean, have you ever done something? And you feel bad. And it makes you wonder, will God ever love me now? How can God ever accept me after what I've done, after where I've been with my life? But you see, when you truly repent, and repentance is not saying you're sorry. It's not regret. Regret is what you feel when you don't repent. True repentance is on your knees or on your face in the presence of God said, I'm guilty. It was wrong, but I'm never going there again. I'm turning my back on what I did. I'm ne because you see, Satan always wants to drag you back to the place from which God has rescued you. So you say, nope, that's done in my life. Now I'm turning toward God. I'm turning toward his love. I'm turning toward his grace. I'm turning toward his Mercy, because repentance gets mercy. That's number three. You're right with God now. And number three, real repentance prevents punishment. You deserve to be punished, but instead you get mercy. You know what God's mercy is? God's mercy is God protecting you from bad stuff you deserve for bad stuff you've done. But when you repent, you get mercy. Um... It was Judah's repentance. That was the reason he was, the whole Jewish nation was named for him. It wasn't because he was the oldest brother or the smartest brother or the best brother. Because he did genuine repentance, Judaism, the Jewish faith, was named after Judah. The Jewish nation, Jews, were named after, it came from Judah, but more importantly than that, we find Judah's name in the family tree of Jesus. You open your Bible to the first book on Jesus' life, Matthew. Turn to the first page, and here's what you'll read. This is the family tree of Jesus Christ. Jacob, that was the dad, um, had Judah. Judah's name is in the family tree of Jesus and his brothers. None of the other brothers are named. Only Judah. Judah had Perez. That was the baby. His mother was Tamar. Perez was the baby born of Judah's sin. And yet Perez is in the family tree of Jesus. Perez had a son, Hezron. And the other generations hit up against Joseph, Mary's husband, the Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the Jesus who was called the Christ. You see, God 
the Father and God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, out of their great love for us, out of their great compassion for us, knowing that we would wreck our lives and wreck our relationships, that we would do wrong, we would bear the blame and wear the shame, that we would know it was wrong, we would do it anyway. We don't give a rip about what anybody says, even God. And, and even though we deserve to be punished, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit made a plan. And Jesus said, I will go. I will go and I will become human. And so he did. He came, he was born. He came to earth born a human, fully human. Never stop being fully God. Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. He said, but when I go, when I go, when I become that little baby in a manger, and as I grow to a man, as I die on the cross, as I'm risen from the dead, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, I want Judah I want Judah's blood in my bloodline. I want that little baby boy's blood in my bloodline. I want them forgiven. I want them accepted. I want them deeply loved because I highly value their repentance. And so we find Judah. I mean, what does this mean? This is for me. This is for you. When you believe that Jesus is God who came to earth through human birth, who lived a sinless life, and gave his life on the cross for our sins, when you believe that, when you believe God raised him from the dead, and when you repent of your sin, and when I repent of our sin, because we're not perfect, we sin. But when we repent, we find unconditional acceptance, full forgiveness. We are deeply loved. Because our God, our Lord, highly values a repentant heart. In fact, when Jesus came to our planet, when he launched his ministry at the age of 30, here's what he proclaimed. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, and believe the good news. So what's the good news that we are to believe? What's the good news? You don't need a do-over because Jesus on the cross did it for you. When he died on the cross, he was taking your place. He was your substitute. He was receiving the punishment we all deserve. It all fell on Jesus. All my blame, all your shame, it all fell on Jesus. Everything bad about me was put on Jesus and everything good about Jesus is now put on me. Everything wrong with you is put on Jesus and everything right with Jesus is put on you. All our ugly, evil imperfections are put on Jesus and all the glory and beauty of his perfection is put on us when we repent, when we repent. And so when one of the closest friends of Jesus, Peter, when he had a, a chance to declare it personally in himself, here's what he said. Repent then, turn from your sin, turn to God. Repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, erased, clean slate, fresh start, new tomorrow, and that times of refreshing may come to you from the Lord. Times of refreshing? The times of refreshing, that's the unconditional acceptance. That's the full forgiveness. That's the deep love. In fact, on the day the church was born, and Peter had an opportunity with an immense crowd of people, here's what he said. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, and be baptized. Every one of you, no exceptions, no exemptions. We all need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
a number of years ago, um, my Debbie and I were in Turkey with a bunch of people uh, from our church, and we were in Ephesus visiting the ruins um, there, and kind of up on a hill above Ephesus is the ruins of an ancient uh, Christian church. And interestingly enough, at the very center of the ruins, these old stones, was a, a baptistry. Now, we have a baptistry here, and people get, we, we, I mean, we get people baptized here regularly. We love it when it's every weekend, but I'm dreaming of the day when it's every day that people come to Christ. But in our baptistry, there are steps, and you walk them down into the water, and when you are buried with Christ and raised up into new life, you walk back up the same steps. But this baptistry in Ephesus, in Turkey, was completely different. It had steps going in, but it had steps going out. So the candidate would walk down those steps, share fully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, be baptized, put their past behind them, bury their baggage, have their sins washed away, and then be raised up. Scripture says, don't you know that when you're baptized, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises you up out of that water, put your life on a whole new trajectory, a whole new walk with the Lord. And then that candidate didn't go back. They're turning their back on their sin. They're going up other steps. They're coming up new, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I'd like to see churchwide repentance, turning our back on our sin. I'd like to see community-wide repentance, turning to God. And this, this is a desperate need in all of our lives. I wanna pray over you right now, prayer of repentance. If you'll stand with me, please. When my, when my prayer is over, I'll come off stage. George is down here uh, with me. Uh, others will be joining us. We want to pray with you. We'll pray with you about any place in your life that needs a touch of God. But particularly, we're looking for those who are ready to say, hey, I'm turning my back on some stuff. I'm turning toward God. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know any nitty-gritty stuff. We just need to know you're ready to repent. And we want to see ushered over your life full forgiveness, unconditional acceptance of God, his deep love his approval, because he highly values a repentant heart. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just want to tell you right now, as a church family, we're guilty. We, we are all guilty. I mean, it's been in different expressions of sin, but we've all been wrong. We've all been the blame. We've all worn the shame. We knew it was wrong. We did it anyway. And we can't get over the fact that though we deserve to be punished, Jesus took the punishment for us, and we got his mercy and grace. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that God raised you from the dead as irrefutable evidence that this is all true. And so right now, Lord Jesus, would you come into this room and invite people to yourself. Invite people, Lord Jesus, to be baptized, have their sins washed away. Holy Spirit, would you shower this room and these hearts with the loving kindness of God because God's loving kindness leads to repentance turning our back on our sin, turning our God to our God. In Jesus' name, amen.